there's a systematic issue here where right. corporations are exploiting workers too. Again, it's this whole neoliberal idea that we as individuals are responsible for this whole situation. Right. Like you as a working class person of color who can't afford to wear t-shirts, like you buying Primark is not the problem. It's the people, the fact that these corporations who can, by the way, afford to give you cheap clothing, but at the same time, relentlessly exploiting mm. workers. These are the, this is where our target needs to be corporations, not ours. Like, right. because we are not responsible for this whole situation. Right. And I think, again, it's all this whole, whole targeting, especially with like the environmental movement I've seen with some organizations a lot where they say, you're doing this, you're doing that, mm. you're buying plastic, you're using plastic straws. Mm. There are corporations that are literally So it's actually a bit of a distraction then. Yeah, this, this is what I, I first think is a distraction. This is why ethical fashion became a thing and became so prevalent because it can be used as a distraction. Mm. We can be like, oh, look, let's just give them some recycled t-shirts and focus right. on that worse and then we can carry on. Salams, peace and blessings. You're listening to Breaking Binaries with me, your host, Sahima Mansour Khan, known online as the Brown Hijabi. As a society, we're obsessed with explaining our world through the use of straightforward opposing categories, so good or bad, moderate or radical, pretty or ugly, victim or villain. The list goes on. All these sets of binaries, though, tend to be quite superficial and they hide the real complexities, politics and nuances of how we've been encouraged to think. So every episode, I'll be sitting down with a different friend to break down, break apart and really interrogate a different binary and see how doing so helps us think more critically and widely about ourselves, our world and therefore how we transform it. This episode, I'm joined by Maisha Begum. Uh, she goes by Oso oh Ethical Online. She's an activist and advocate for labour rights. And I first came across her work when she was talking about ethical fashion on Project Ribcage's podcast. She studied labour, social movements and development at SOAS. And she works as a labour research assistant. We had a really amazing conversation. And I hope you enjoy listening because this was one that really got my mind in knots. Okay, uh, welcome to another episode of Breaking Binaries. I am joined this week by Maisha. Uh, you might know her online as Oso oh Ethical. Uh, she's an activist and uh, advocate for labour rights. Um, I first came across you when you were on Project Ribcage podcast. Yeah. And uh, you were talking about ethical fashion. Um, you, you've studied labour, social movements and development at SOAS and you are a labour research assistant. So I feel like you're very well placed um, <laughs> yeah, it's very, to be on this podcast. <laughs> Thank you for having me. No, I'm really excited to be here. Thank you. No, I'm really excited to have you because the binary we're going to be breaking this week is ethical and unethical fashion, um, which I feel is quite controversial to, to break this binary. Yeah, I'm so glad you did this, to be honest, because I've wanted a conversation like this just generally. When I've tried to put it out there, it's kind of been like shut down, oh, not necessarily shut down, but just ignored. Like I've always tried to criticize or do what we're about to do. But so I'm just thankful that I've, be, I've got a platform to actually do this because no, I've got I'm, a lot to say. I'm so grateful. No, I feel like there's so much to learn from your work and I feel like you post so much and you you come out with so much about these kind of topics that it's often easy to just overlook it and it, and it feels like you're doing a lot of important work. So Thanks. inshallah, let's hope that we get some, uh, get some ideas out here. So... Let's start with the basics. Uh, ethical fashion uh, is a term that I'm hearing more and more. Um, it seems, it sounds like a good thing. It sounds mm -hmm. great. <laughs> ethical sounds good. I'm hearing fast fashion versus slow fashion. Um, and people are basically talking about, as, as far as I understand, buying clothes uh, in a way that would be the least exploitative, or uh, to, whether that's to people or to mm -hmm. the environment. Standing. Um, maybe you can kind of give us a simple understanding. Ethical fashion is typically... Um Fashion or clo in well clothes basically made in a situation where workers are like 
supposedly treated well, they've got fair wages, working conditions are great and they have a happy life, etc. And also <laughs> it kind of entails like the environmental aspects. So it might mean that it's there's organic cotton involved. And so what I'm trying to basically put out is there's a lot of, there's no strict definition for ethical right. fashion and it's kind of just this broad thing that's put in the air like, yeah we are ethical right. and I will talk about this later but right. it's just a very broad definition of and what I think it is. maybe it's based more on like the idea of what unethical is and I think yeah. for, for, for someone who's not super involved in that, uh, like this world I know for me like just when I was thinking earlier today about moments that stood out for me it's like I remember um, was it 2013 or 2015 2015 uh, I think Dhaka Garment Factory collapsed 2013 yeah okay 2013, 2013 yeah. my bad um, so I remember when that happened that could, and maybe that's only mm. because it kind of did hit news headlines that in a way that I hadn't seen before. That was crazy. I still remember the day. Like I was literally like I was in I was at sixth form and we were talking about biology and mm. that I saw the image of like a man and a woman holding each other under the rubble and that's when it just like I mean prior to that I had been kind of aware. I think I must have been twelve thirteen when I saw my first documentary on the garment right. industry and then I was like um, and I, me and mom were talking about it and I was like this is so messed up and so our alternative was fair trade so obviously like the ethical aspect like, right. so it was kind of like okay let's just buy fair trade or let's not buy at all and we also bought second hand like this was a time where charity shops weren't cool so yeah. we were kind of on the slide like buying second hand now it's like yeah yeah which I think actually is linked to what you were saying as well about perceptions around ethical and unethical and and I think maybe we can talk about this later as well in terms of like class and and these kinds of things because I guess one thing I was going to say is I, I, I find it interesting because I remember at school, like when you do geography at school and stuff, this was mm. a huge, this was, this seemed like a, a, an issue that was coming up eight years ago, you know, where it's like, mm. I remember studying Nike and it being like, um, understanding like the supply chain is this really long thing. And we got to think about the materials, like who's sourcing them, yeah. where are they coming from? Then we got to think about the people who move those materials. Then we think about the people who are putting the shoe together. Then we think about the person who, and I guess um, my, like my basic understanding of why it's unethical in a very basic way is just that you're exploiting humans. Um, it, that is not a way that I would want anybody I, I know or love to be treated. But also more than that, I think it's this weird thing of that alienation of, I go to H&M or wherever, I just see a top. Yeah. I have no idea. We've lost that connection between us, not just clothing, but with consumption generally, we've lost the connection between like what happens between the part where I purchased something what happened between that for that to even be made and the whole process we've just kind of I feel like we've kind of been put in a position now where we are told that it's okay to kind of like disregard that and just kind of buy things without even having to think and it's just like this become this thoughtless consumption it's not the fault Mm. of us exactly Mm. it's kind of what's been perpetrated out there for us to think 100% and then in terms of this ethical thing that's just kind of it's kind of fed into this more in a sense that it's kind of allowed brands be like okay you're now you want to think about it okay well here's like our definition of ethical we're putting this out and and so what are the kinds of things that brands will say constitutes ethical will they talk a lot about mm. the conditions of workers or do they talk more about environment i'm seeing a bit of both this but like is, what do you see most yeah, so this is interesting and it kind of draws what you were saying earlier as that it's very broad and it kind of and like terms like ethical sustainable like it kind of gets to me you know now at this point because it can mean anything any Mm. brand can technically say they are doing this ethically they have a sustainable collection what does that mean Mm. and so for example you've got the you might be firstly no one's paying living wage let's just put that there no one's paying living wage so what is the living wage um it varies in different countries so what does it mean yeah so basically minimum wage is the minimum you have to you have to pay your workers um but that is usually below poverty so it's not really anything living wage is what is needed for a person and a family to survive and 
have a decent life. No one's paying living wage. Uh, minimum wage, very unlikely. And to be honest, um, that in itself is nothing because basically poverty wage you're saying. So our minimum um, wage is usually set by the government and then corp- uh, like mm. corporations follow that rather than the other way around. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So typically it's um, put out there, yeah, it's put out there by the government. Um, so. And are we talking with a lot of this, I, I imagine, a lot of uh, like these, the places where the garments are actually produced are in the global south? Yeah, 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 definitely. So we've got, basically um so it worked uh, the textile industry well going way back so there it was initially obviously in the global south with bangladesh being like the biggest um exporter of cotton um then industrial mm. revolution happened and then they um decided to compete with the markets in um bangladesh they didn't want they wanted basically wanted to have um to take over that so they could compete and make more money and kind of override the industry in Bangladesh. Bangladesh industry collapsed. Mm. They took um the workers um in the UK were producing these clothes under really poor conditions that we're seeing now to be honest. Very similar. Um so it's almost like I've heard that it's like the idea of like colonization was the deindustrialization yeah, of, yeah, of South Asia. Hundred percent. Yeah, and so these workers here in the UK were under very, very poor working conditions, terrible. Then they started uprising, and this happened in the US as well. So trade unions started forming, and workers start workers started to become involved about what they wanted. Then in the US there was the Triangle Garment Factory fire, where um, there was a huge fire and um, workers died. Very reminiscent, similar to what's happened. Even recently. So when are you talking at the moment? This like is when 19... Vaguely. 1900s. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So then at that point, it was largely migrant work, women workers as well. So these workers, they decided to unionise and demand um, better working conditions. As a result of kind of these workers mobilising in the global north, um, it was kind of easier for these corporations to be like, okay, these don't want their rights. Where can we go where we don't mm. have to give rights to their workers? So then they decided to export outwards towards um, the global south because at that point, no regulation. You can right. do what you want. Um, at this time, neoliberalism was... Um, neoliberal policies were expanding so it was easier for corporations to run around to different um, countries wherever they wanted to do business so you go and you basically outsource your production to somewhere yeah. where there's less rules you probably don't have to think about health and safety yeah and this is basically how it became so prevailing in the global south because right. it's easy to get away with and it's happening to this day so companies are corporations are moving from country to country trying to find the cheapest places mm. so with Bangladesh for example now they've got the accord which is basically a health and safety legally binding agreement that corporations need well they are advised to sign up to after Rana Plaza um, they have to invest in that and also there's a lot of because there's a lot of media attention on Bangladesh they're like mm. okay where else can we go right. Myanmar recently okay. um, um, became open to trade trade agreements people move there um, Ethiopia is the big the hot spot at the moment for these garment um corporations because they had no right now the trade unions are trying to mobilize but mm. at the time when Earlier this year, there's lots of um, re- reports coming out from there that corporations are moving there because there's literally no regulation mm. or anything. They can pay however they want. So, right. so sorry, just yeah. to get an, like an example of what that um, when we say we're talking about exploitation, and obviously you're talking about 
on the one hand, uh, I guess one example is like not being paid um, to to live. But yeah. I think I've you know there's there's also other. I mean, the conditions themselves. I yeah. hear are like. And can you give us a few examples of like what what you know the reality of like what does it actually look like to be a garment worker? Yeah. I mean, not that you necessarily, but like what what you know. Yeah, yeah. So. One thing I want to point out is the fact that one big issue is corporations, they are constantly trying to compete with each other to produce the most and um, to sell it off for the least. Right. So they put the, they go to a certain factory or supplier and say, we want this amount made, this much made in this amount of time. Um, these targets are ridiculous. Like you can't physically make these, you can't meet these targets. Right. It's literally impossible. So but, it'll be what, like make uh, like 500 like, shoes in, a, in like, a week or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And the thing is, because they want to meet trends so quickly, right. this is also increasing. So now they're trying to meet these trends and trying to get their suppliers to meet these demands mm. in crazy like extents. Like the targets they want to meet are ridiculous. Um, so what this does is this puts pressure on the suppliers to meet these demands. And also bear in mind, they don't produce, they don't, these companies don't invest any money in actually helping to improve working conditions to accommodate these demands. Mm. And when there's these ethical trade policies and stuff that they put out there, they don't actually invest in them. So these suppliers are meant to meet these demands while also meeting ethical demands from various different corporations with no money to back that up. Okay. So they're kind of left with no, well, obviously suppliers have agency in this situation because there's no need to abuse your workers and it's ridiculous. Right. But, um, but it this, feeds so, into so this. Just to understand then, so you sort of have, it sounds like there's a few different moving parts here. So you've got a, a brand or a corporation that's mm. let's just let's just say Nike, for example, yeah. um, and then they would have suppliers that are not. So it's not. A, it's, do they do they own the factory themselves? So Nike not don't always, own the factory. No, no. So this is part of the problem as well. I think that's Outsource, like they yeah. kind of can just they can kind of scapegoat. I guess yeah, that it's not exactly. It's, not awful, it's just the suppliers exactly, who own the factory. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and the thing is, what this does is, so you've got this pressure, and these core suppliers have to meet these demands and meet all these things. So what they do is they make their workers work overtime mm -hmm. and they have to save as much money as possible so they're giving them really poor wages um, then they outsource further because they don't have the capacity to make it themselves so they outsource to other subcontracted factories which uh, are like under the radar ones that you don't hear about this okay. is where the real like it's terrible working conditions because they're not regulated like right. these tl one factories they're the first factory that the companies go to okay. they're regulated in under policies I and see. stuff but these subcontracted ones so this you, is like the factories then outsourcing mm, more work because there's too and much and it's work. ongoing okay. to the point where you get home workers and everything right. so and these, they're not regulated and probably the more down the line the less you're actually probably in a more precarious place maybe you're it's, I don't know I'm assuming like asylum seeking or like you're you're, you're not um, what's the word like legally got a lot of rights in a lot, yeah definitely this happens in Turkey a lot oh, so with Syrian refugees this is a, oh. a lot of research come out this year okay. especially from where I work where um, they found that a lot of corporations but because Turkey is close to the European um, brands they purchase it because it's quick it's easier to um, transport yeah exactly right. so they found that uh, through like suppliers and going down the chain they found countless examples of Syrian refugees Syrian children working and obviously this has to be hidden because they can't um they have no papers, they have no right. anything. They're very vulnerable and very precarious. Exactly. So this is very under the radar. And corporations, are very, they are very aware of this, by the way. They know it's happening. They know all of this is happening. So they've created this environment of intense pressure. They've put it on the suppliers. The suppliers have to meet all these demands. That goes on to the workers. And the workers are literally working nonstop. Health and safety suppliers can't invest in that. Um, there were long hours, poor wages. Is This is what this... 
it's, I kind of want to draw the fact that this whole environment they've created is feeding into this. So while they're going out purporting all this ethical, sustainable mm. rhetoric, they're pushing, and in fact, it's getting worse. Like any report, research you find or reports from this year, you'll find that lead times, the time mm. they give uh, factories to make um, like a bulk of clothes or whatever, it's, yeah. de- it's declining. Like they're, it's declining as we speak. Like they're So they're basically creating an environment where it's more likely exploitation will happen yeah, exactly. whilst also saying we now recognise ethical fashion is really Exactly, important. exactly. Okay, so on that note then... So you've got, I mean, again, I've got a good impression of what unethical, what is unethical about yeah. the whole supply chain, the garment industry. Um, and to my mind then as a consumer, if a brand says that we're going to talk about ethical fashion or we're going to sell ethical fashion, that does sound really good because mm. it sounds like I, I don't want to be complicit in exactly. people's, you know, bl- have blood on my hand, basically. So why then is it that we're suggesting today that ethical and unethical are actually not such opposing categories? There's just a lot of gray area between right. all of this. Like, I'm very, I don't know, maybe I'm coming from a very pessimistic, but, no, but I think it. I want to emphasize that worker, like freedom of association and trade unions, they're not addressing this conversation at all. Like, this is the thing, like workers aren't given their rights or their ability to understand their rights or given the right to organize and mobilize and collectively. So bargaining. when most companies say that they are doing ethical, not yeah. know, labor, what, what do they mean? What are they actually doing? Like, or what, what can we get in? Can you give us like an example of anything that yeah. you've seen? So a lot of in, res- in response since the Rana Plaza and um, a lot of criticism, they've started putting out a lot of um, policies that they put forward. So they have like a living wage policy. So this is they internal have- to corporations. Yeah. And okay. then they put it out there to consumers to see. So, oh yeah, we have this policy. Right. We've signed up to industrials um, agreement on trade unions. We've signed up to this. They'll have a comprehensive list of all these policies they've signed to saying, oh no, we do care. We've signed a better cotton initiative mm. to improve our cotton supply chain or like it's like it's ridiculous right now so with me my job at one point was to actually look at all these policies and it is insane because it's just completely insane seeing that they have these policies they're right. using this as a justification but it's not being done like if anything CSS or corporate social responsibility which is basically how corporate um, like agree policies that companies put out to show how they're improving working conditions. Mm. CSR, if anything has clouded, has allowed them to shield any criticism of what they're doing because they can say they've done this, they've done that, but really they're doing nothing. So how is it possible that that contradiction exists? Like who, who, who is the kind of body that they should be accountable to? Or is this the problem? There is no... This is the problem, 100%. This is where you got it. They are... There's no accountability. There's no legal accountability. If they... These policies, one issue is that first, they're not legally binding. So if they don't, like, if it doesn't... Um, if they do something that goes against it, they'll be heavily criticised. So basically what it. I'm hearing then is that brands have decided to brand themselves as ethical. Yeah. And it's more of a, a move for a consumer to actually want to buy their goods yeah, rather than exactly. anything else so, so you're saying there's no material changes then there's behind no, the scenes no I mean I feel like people will say okay yeah there are, have been some improvements particularly in terms of health and safety so in Bangladesh health and safety has improved because because this agreement was legally binding so technically okay. so brands had to um, if they didn't meet the requirements then they or didn't invest in health and safety in the factories and they would have to pay up. Hmm. However, my whole dissertation was how this is a bit of a flaw. So Why? In, what, what? Um, it was basically, it, so it's a, it's a tripartite agreement. With, what does that mean? <laughs> so it basically means there's um, the NGOs, brands and trade unions. Okay. So they created this agreement where 
brands had to sign up and they were legally bound to improving the their work, their factories, health mm. and safety. So this was really crazy because there'd never been some sort of like binding agreement. Usually it's kind of either policies that the brands have put out themselves, they're policing themselves and being like, yeah, we're doing this. Right, yeah, moving. we're going to review our yeah. own work. Yeah. Or they were signed up to NGO ones and they were still just kind of given like a like a telling off and that's it. But um, this was really big and it did have an impact in terms of like statistics wise, if you look at reports, health and safety has improved in a lot of the factories. How do they measure that? Um, so they look at, there's a, there's lots of, um, they have like, what do you call it? Every four, every four months, they have like a report showing a percentage of like improvements to fire and health and safety oh, sort of like changes in terms of like oh. door changes and oh, different okay. like specific Indicators. areas. And they do percentage of how many, but um, there's a lot of flaws in this, um, mainly that um, employers weren't included for me. That was an issue because and brands are kind of- yeah, that was, I was going to say, I'm a bit confused. Employers don't have to sign up to this agreement. They, so there's the- in Bangladesh, kind of complex is the BGMEA, which is the Employers Association. Okay. So they are kind. At the same time, they're like politicians and they're also employers, and they're very kind of corrupt. It's been seen. So they are kind of invested in just promoting themselves and their privilege and their power. So my question in all of this then mm. is, what I'm hearing from you is that at no point does it sound like the changes that need to be made are coming from the workers themselves? It sounds like there's a lack of actual, the voice of the workers. Yeah. So this was the problem like this. So this agreement, it did have trade unions involved and okay. they were kind of the worker voice. However, if you do talk to workers, if you, had, if you, if you have like work, if you read the worker um, responses, they're not all that positive about the accord. Um, I feel like I'm going to get slated by someone who, who knows about the Bangladesh accord. But um, like, well, for my research anyway, like, there was, they would focus so much on health and safety, but they'd kind of neglect issues that were happening at the same time. So again, mm-hmm. we trade, like freedom of association, I want to emphasize that. Like, So what's freedom of association? So that's the ability to basically organize and um, join trade union and to protest, etc. So most government workers are not actually afforded the ability to unionize in the first place. Yeah, because there's a lot of obstacles that come in the way. For example, if you're in a, like, in a, country where the government is very um, anti-unions um, it can be violent um, especially when they're male-led and about 80-90% of the government industry are women 80 or 90%. They fa- yeah they face a lot of discrimination and gender-based violence mm. um, and a lot of the time they can also be part of the factory management so that there's like so many issues and I'm guessing trading. part of the issue then as well is that lots of these corporations are transnational so can they be bound by like a national law say in mm. one country if I say right in my country you uh, you have to you know stick to all these regulations yeah. aren't you just going to go and outsource your production somewhere else yeah see this is the thing and I, I'm glad you put that up because the thing if we look back in history these countries were most of them were screwed by colonialism right and when they were deve- when development was happening and post development in quotation was, um, was happening post colonialism uh, the IMF and World and World Bank they kind of put these um, neoliberal policies saying oh yeah we'll help you out we'll help you um, develop just um, sign up to adjustment strategies and policies Mm. um, which basically created an economy in these countries where they are dependent on the investment of the West right so they they haven't they have Yes, everything's their economy has been manipulated to that. So they're dependent on actually being suppliers in this chain. Yeah, so that they, yeah, which is crazy because now 
you can't if you tell a government right you need to start like policing these corporations mm. they are they are their whole economy is dependent on, on investment. the investment so how why are they going to mm. change anything they so need then, that i mean what is the actual what are the actual steps that could be taken to create an ethical a more ethical environment uh i think firstly there needs to be more account legal accountability that needs to be put in place on like, a transnational level or on a on all levels i guess yeah so the un has like a business and human rights treaty thing and that i believe needs to be pushed more i right. think i mean the un yeah it's not like it's so this is part of the problem right because i'm just thinking when you're speaking that <laughs> And it goes back to what you said at the start that maybe the crux of this capitalism is the problem, right? Uh, this yeah, idea that's that, basically it. That's the, basically, the idea yeah. that we can, that actually we, I mean, even the idea of wage labor, right? That you sell your labor. Yeah, this, that so isn't a flaw in itself. So we're basically like, the whole thing is flawed. But it, that's why it's tricky because like, especially where I work, like I have to do everything with that, with like the capitalist sort of the idea that capitalism exists and what can I do within capitalism? But well, in my head, I'm thinking capitalism. this whole system is flawed. Because you know I mean? from what you're saying, that's what I'm getting is that ultimately to transform the situation, mm. you'd have to rethink the whole dependency Econom relationship yeah. of the global South on the global North, exactly. which as you say, comes from colonialism, but also is completely... Uh, is, is an, a relationship of extraction, as far as I'm hearing. Exactly, um, exactly. We're not re it's not going the other way around. And if anything, I've heard that we dump lots of our clothes then back there. Yeah, this is the secondhand fashion industry. That is crazy. So, okay, so th that's interesting. So I thought secondhand fashion is ethical because yeah. people say go to charity shops. That's good. Recycle your clothes. I mean, yeah. something interesting I saw recently was that H&M has these um, recycle, oh, go yeah. and like go recycle your clothes. But I heard um, that actually they recycle like 2% or like a tiny yeah, percentage. It's tiny. Most of it is being sent to the global south and dumped there and sometimes basically I think in some African countries don't know specifically there's quite a few where they get dumped there and they are being sold in the second hand market now this second hand market that's been created and pushed by us and enforced by us um, has kind of drowned out the textile industry that existed there so a lot of um, countries right. and governments are starting to try and ban these imp these um, like exports and they're trying so you're saying that there were textile industries where it's producing textiles for local people but yeah. now because we're dumping so much back there that they're just going out of business because yeah, you can buy it much cheaper yeah, I'm guessing exactly right. so now a lot of governments I haven't looked at this recently but they are trying to um, enforce kind of just pushing this back and trying to develop their own textile industries which is happening right now so basically it sounds like a very like lose-lose situation because bit, if yeah. what we're saying is ethical it sounds like just to sum up what we've said so far ethical fashion has become basically a brand um yeah. and i think this this really links to a lot of things we've talked about throughout this podcast over the weeks that there are things that sound good um that therefore kind of go get to go by uncritically and uh if a corporation can say that they're ethical we as consumers feel better about ourselves we don't, we don't feel complicit yeah. in something but then also you have words like recycling right that sounds good and i can't believe you're going to tell me that recycling is bad <laughs> yeah. but when you say that actually it's just reinforcing this this system essentially of dumping on the global south extracting mm. from the global south um it sounds like it's almost an impossible conundrum then to get out of that cycle yeah and i think that's the problem like when i began i was a typical like ethical fashion sort of blog where i talk about yeah i bought this ethical t-shirt it was really nice i bought this vegan <laughs> thing it was really nice and then as i years got on i got really just annoyed that nothing was changing and i think that kind of and then when I started changing my own opinion and started talking more about just learning more about what's actually happening engagement with the ethical mm. sort of sphere wasn't there and 
that has that's still happening and not many people in the ethical sphere actually except so I think and it's mainly just people who aren't aware who are more engaged mm. in what I'm doing which was really interesting for me because it's like okay we can see this is a, a problem why are we not addressing it and that's what's restrained because it's like the one community who you assume would care and would want to address it maybe aren't and like and, and I think also the I reckon that there's because for me the, the reason that this became came something on my radar is that if I'm thinking about injustice in any capacity, so the main thing I feel like I, I kind of how I came to politics is through racism and thinking about mm. racism. Now, for me, this is inherently bound up with racism. There's yeah. no way to extract or d d you know separate these 100%. things. But I do feel there's a real lack of intersectional understanding when it comes to ethical fashion, and a lot of people. So, I, I mean, and I'm not going to name any names, but recently um, a, a political activist group um, doing really important work um, reached out to me to ask if they could send me um, T-shirts with their political activism on it without naming any names. Yeah, yeah. And I I was like, look, I absolutely stand for what you're talking about, but I just want to check before you do this, like, where are your T-shirts um, produced? Because it would be ironic to kind of have a slogan on the T-shirt yeah, that says yeah, I stand yeah. for this one uh, cause, but at the expense of these other people in the global south. And so they, and what was interesting is that they found out, they kind of went back to their supplier and they were like, that's a good question. And then the supplier sent me the most random, like just looked at the most fake certificate that he just put on a Word document, you know what I mean? Oh and days. it just was like, this is a picture of our factory. The working conditions are great here. Thumbs up. And I was like, you can't just send me a photograph of like some happy <laughs> workers. No, I'm serious. I'm so fully serious. Crazy. And so I had to say, look, I'm really sorry. I just don't feel comfortable um, until you can find out more rigorously, like who's making these, these garments. Yeah. And the thing that was really sad about it was that it's you know a cause basically for oppressed people in in the global south um facing like colonial occupation but then it's that the cause is being done in the name of yeah. these other people who then been exploited the exact same in, in my mind it's a very it's a very similar parallel and it's that lack of intersectional thinking that i also see quite a lot yeah and i completely agree and i think it's why i've always been so frustrated like why when we've done any sort of like activism and I, I'm involved in lots of different areas, but it's like one thing that's always been neglected would always be kind of where do our clothes come from? Where the ethical or mm. the, the workers aspect of it. So any of these, any similar to your experience, like I've seen this happen so many times and people, and even for example, with the feminist movement, like I'm very happy, like we're speaking and being very vocal, but gender-based violence, Me Too movement, but where are the garment workers actually involved? Right. This is like, and then you've got all these teachers saying, yeah, well, I'm a exactly. feminist and all of that. And so yeah, which women's rights really yeah, matter. Yeah, exactly. Who's and this is one thing that I, <laughs> keeps me awake at night sometimes because I'm just like, this is, we're completely neglecting like a huge population mm -hmm. who have been completely relentlessly exploited. And fashion is such, a, it's not even just a hidden thing. Exactly. We are, every fashion day, surrounds everywhere. us. How are we not addressing this yeah. really pivotal issue, which is everywhere. We can address the environment, we can address feminist yeah. right, movements, we can address so many different injustices. Mm. And it's just this one area where like everyone's trying to shy away from. And I get why, because it's very hard to address. Like you can't, it's, it's so- It's not that hard to address in, in another sense, yeah. because it's, as you say, the fact that, I mean, I think, Two things. One one thing that this is just making me think is, that, and this is a thread that has run through a lot of the binaries that we've done on the podcast, it, which is just the dehumanization of people, what it yes, allows for. And so 100%. if you can, and, I, and again, it does, for me, a lot of this does come back to uh, colonialism and racism and, uh, you know, just sort of modernity, colonial modernity. But if you have dehumanized, you know, a significant amount of the world, it is, I think that's, it's not that people 
don't care necessarily. It's that we can't care because we have- We've lost we, that whole we've lost, connection. Yeah, there is no humanity people. that we can grant to these people. And I think it's like, you know, to take that idea, I think um, Karl Marx's idea of the alienation of mm. labor that we, we you know, you go to a shop and all you see is made in India, made in Bangladesh, but you don't there's know, there's no person. human in that story. Yeah. And I think there is something completely objectifying about that when you, and also, oh, oh actually something I wanted to bring up. Yeah. That's just reminding me of is, um, you know, a lot of people, talk about how it's really difficult to consume ethically actually because if we talk about actual you know I don't, I don't maybe you can critique this but people say you know there are brands that are ethical but they're really expensive how am i as you know someone on a relatively mm. low wage myself in the west as a per actually and you know it's interesting as a as a working class person of color in the yeah. global north um how can you say that i'm oppressing you know working class people in the global south when i'm just buying the clothes that i i, I yeah. can afford and i think for me i'm so glad you said this because this is one of the issues i have with this whole kind of rhetoric around ethical fashion when it exists because we've kind of focused on the consumption aspect aspect of it and like right like and that's where that's where I think people stop because they're like right I can't bear fair, buy fair trade I can't buy ethical so I can't get involved in this like this is too much like I can't and I that's that's what's frustrating because even when I did like an interview like a BBC Asian Network I don't know if I could say who it was but um that was constantly the question I got like oh so what are you wearing then what are you wearing and that mm. was my problem because there's a systematic issue here where right. corporations are exploiting workers to, again, it's this whole neoliberal idea that we as individuals are responsible for this whole situation. Right. Like you as a working class person of colour who can't afford to wear t-shirts, like you buying Primark is not the problem. It's the peop the fact that these corporations who can, by the way, afford to give you cheap clothing, but at the same time, are relentlessly exploiting mm. workers. These are the. This is where our target needs to be corporations, not ours. Like right. because we are not responsible for this whole situation. Right. And I think again, it's whole this whole, whole targeting, especially with like the environmental movement. I've seen with some organisations a lot where they say you're doing this, you're doing that, mm. you're buying plastic, you're using plastic straws. Mm. There are corporations that are literally. So it's actually the world. a bit of a distraction then. Yeah, this, this, this is focus what I, I first think is a distraction. This is why ethical fashion became a thing and became so prevalent because it can be used as a distraction. Mm. We can be like, oh, look, let's just give them some recycled t shirts and focus right. on that. Whereas, and then we can carry on exploiting like workers. Because it, and like I said, it's getting worse. If this ethical fashion movement would have worked, then it would have got better. Things mm. are getting worse. Corporations are getting more powerful. They're making more profit. Mm. Workers are making less. It's like, I'll just yeah. like, the alcohol. and I guess it's also not, I mean, just thinking about what you're saying, it's also not uh, disconnected from the exploitation of workers here, because say you have, um, let's take McDonald's, you have your explosive mm, McDonald's workers in the exactly. West. Now you're not paying them a living wage. So what clothes yeah. can they afford? They can afford the clothes that are coming at the cheapest, exactly. lowest this cost. This is why I get, have a problem with consumer sort of focused, because we are in a position where like, corporations again it, this is why like, especially with the blog like I diversified not just being garment now because I realised this is a, like an intrinsic issue that is deeply embedded in society and right. the world generally where corporations are more power neoliberal policies are like allowing these corporations to take power without any kind of regulation especially like you said with Uber and the gig economy um, Could you just say a bit more about that what Uber and the gig economy So the gig economy is basically where workers are given are working on a flexible sort of contract so they work on like four hour zero hour contracts there's no sort of actual legitimate contract saying you are a worker so sometimes they will be seen as um a, a, what do you call it a contract a contractor so you're not actually an employer and that yeah. employee which means that you're not um allowed to have basically any you're not bound to any like benefits um 
what do you call it? Living wage, yeah, exactly. Pensions. Like, yeah, pensions, etc. So this kind of allows profits to kind of be, well, money to be kind of focused on making Absolutely, profit. profit over people. So Uber is a big one. Deliveroo, mm. all of these ones, all of the um, latest ones that are coming out, they are extracting a lot of profit from us. And there's this is why, I don't know, I think maybe because I work in this area, I see all the time, but there are a lot of protests happening right now globally against the gig economy. In Can you give us a few examples? Because we don't, we, we don't look at yeah. this every day. So there's been lots of protests across the UK about delivery because they've manipulated the wage process so that basically they changed the system of how you get paid. And a lot of works have complained that they're getting paid less. Right. And this has happened in a lot of this Instacart, there's Postmates, there's a lot of in America as well. Mm. They are basically they're finding that the wage system is being changed. And because algorithms, you can't really on like, it's all online digital, so you right. can't really pick this up. And isn't it the case that more and more industries are going to move towards this kind of yeah, because, more flexible economy? Yeah, because it's, it's they can make more profit. You're not an employee anymore. You're a contractor. You're not bound to anything. They can leave you. But so then I, I know, but I know some people also, and I mean, because I actually bring this up with a lot of my Uber drivers yeah. just out of interest, but a lot of them will say, actually, no, I love the flexible hours. This is yeah. fantastic. So how do we create a system where it's, is, is the solution just that they are seen as employees rather than yeah. that we say that you don't get, you know, get rid of this type That's of work? That's the thing. Like you can, like this, like, I don't think you should ban the flexibility of it, but just classify your workers as employees. Yeah. And it's like, even today I was reading about something in South Korea happening. When I tell you this is global, like workers and unions are globally mobilizing against the fact that workers are just being seen as independent contractors because it allows these corporates to get away with things. And they have, and it's crazy. And so how do we as lay people um, mm. get involved if we want to support workers' rights, if we want to support these union unions that are striking or that are protesting? How can I, as you know, yeah. average Joe blogs do anything? Yeah. Firstly, it begins with actually speaking about it. So there isn't much conversation on workers' rights generally, like I've seen. And um, when it is done, obviously it's done in the ethical fashion way, which is why within the blog, I've been trying to push it another way. I'm like, So you're trying to connect it to all industries across the world, essentially, yeah, right? And also trying to emphasize the corporate accountability that right. needs, because I think corporate accountability is the answer to all of this. If we demand, like back in the 90s, when there was a whole movement against sweatshops, mm. that led to corporates having to create these new policies. Obviously, there's flaws in the policies, but the fact that they had moved and they had mm. to do this, well, as far as I understand it, every piece of labour rights has come out of protest and come exactly. out of exactly. pushback. And this is why, like, this is why I emphasise so heavily because a lot of change. Like, for example, I think one thing I've always pushed is the fact that in the West here, we kind of any sort of change that happens, we kind of say, "Oh, yeah, it's because we mobilise." All of these movements that ever happen, like, for example, your eight-hour. Mm -hmm. day your weekends your weekends all of that was based on the mobilizing of workers and it's happening now in Bangladesh if you see any wage increase if you see any improvement it's because of the base of the workers mm. who are, who've been mobilizing consistently risking their lives going out there like if anything it's our duty because we're the ones essentially benefiting from this yeah. and also the fact that like our government probably earns more than the whole the government of Bangladesh yeah. from all of this through VAT and all of that like it is our duty to stand in solidarity and yeah. I know it's hard but it begins with actually speaking about speaking it about and it. sharing and talking and tweeting and I suppose we can easily amplify these days we can easily amplify actually it's, online the voices yeah. of those who are striking exactly and a lot of them are it's very accessible now like a lot of it's being spoken about it's very kind of under the radar so. and what is your blog by the way so people can find it uh, it's called Also Ethical so I'm mainly on Instagram I'm 
I'm also on Twitter and I have a website called alsoethical.website, but it's not really that like. But you post a lot about these things and I think it's really helpful. And I just, before we move on to the next bit, I just wanted to um, mention as well that environment is a big part of this conversation mm, as well in 100%. recent years. And um, I know a lot of people watched that documentary on uh, Netflix and it kind of changed everyone's mind. I is can't remember what it was called. Yeah, The True Cost. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, but I know that one of the critiques around this as well is that... Um, you know, uh, this, well, this term greenwashing is mm, kind of come up more yeah. and more, which I think is quite a useful term to think about the ways that um, industries will kind of, um, you know, put on this face of being green and ethical, mm -hmm. but beneath the surface. And is it the same thing that they're just not changing the material conditions or what is it this time? What's the, is it, are they becoming more environmentally friendly? No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, basically what they'll do is they'll, um, oh, let me give you a prime example. Boohoo. They okay. are, okay. Oh, this is a new topic I should talk about. So, um, so you see how we've kind of contracted all our or outsourced all our work to the global south. Um, there's the new ultra fast fashion movement, which has moved, um, which is basically trying to intensify the speed at which they can meet trends. So pause for a second. So what is slow and fast fashion? And um, before you into ultra fast, okay, for sorry. A second. <laughs> <laughs> um, slow fashion is basically. Um, okay, I'm going to be honest. I don't know too much about the area in itself, but it's basically that you. You don't really follow trends. It's not that intense. Oh. So you kind of just produce slowly. So you just... So because trends drive a much faster... Yeah, so is that you what you were talking of, about before, where they like make 500 shoes? Yeah, now, so you now, don't follow um, the trends. It's very much just producing... The clothes produ are produced like as they're meant to be within the right amount of time and workers are treated fairly. Okay. Like and then fast is what we've been talking trends, about. It's meeting trends everywhere, like as fast as you can. So then ultra fast. Ultra fast, the next level. So basically there's a couple of new brands. So Boohoo, Misguided and... Um, These online Online kind of. ones. So they are all online based. So what they've done is they've, um, they're based in like the UK, a lot of them. There's some in um, the US, for example, um, and Fashion Nova in LA. So they basically are based in the UK. They have factories right Right next to them so that when they want to make something or meet um, a fashion trend or whatever they can quickly get it produced in that factory which is right next to them the design can go to them within like what, a week and then the next week they can put it out because it's already ma been made and then they distribute wow. and ship out this is a really intense system so these factories you can kind of guess who's working in them migrants like right. my poor migrants who have who are like vulnerable precarious okay maybe undocumented yeah and the working situations here are really poor as well so this is like another layer this is kind of like added out that's recently become a big thing and there's been a lot of movements trying to address this um Busa, for example with them they've got a new recycled sort of collection or they say yeah we care about the environment mm. we've got a recycling collection check it out so however, what they think the material has been recycled mm, okay however when you look at Okay, but before the distribution, there's a there's a warehouse where the clothes are like put into like shipping containers or whatever. I don't know how it works, but there's the warehouse where the clothes get sorted. They have been trying to unionize for the past few years, but Boohoo has denied them complete ability to unionize because the working conditions are so bad. Wow. Like it's really bad. And the thing is, normally the companies they'll kind of like give leave and be like, okay, yeah, we'll recognize them, we'll recognize them. Boohoo has straight up just been like, no. Like How they, do they, they even do that? They just... say they have, they say they will, but they haven't done anything yet. And they told a parliamentary inquiry inquiry that they were going to allow the workers to mobilise. In I this mean, country? To, yeah, in, to unionise, but they haven't done anything. And this is the kind of contradiction between, okay, point is recycling collection and you can classify it as like recycled or environmentally mm. friendly. But your workers have been trying to unionise for like two years now because the working conditions are bad. In Leicester, where their clothes are produced, 
everyone knows the conditions there are really, really bad. Like, there's loads of reports coming out now about how bad what Leicester is, and it's just it's just an ongoing drive for profit and to increase pace. Hmm. So you've got. So are we driving that as consumers? Um, or are we being driven by the industry I think itself? It's, yeah, I think it's both. I mean, their profits are intense. They're crazy. Like they have made like, I don't know how many billion, but they made crazy amount this year, Boohoo, because they own Misguided. They own Pretty right, Little Thing. They okay. own Nasty Girl. They own like, okay. the Boohoo group is insane. It's like a crazy like, Mm. force but um, and Fashion Nova as well is doing insanely well but at the same time it's the fact that we are working on very low wages yeah. um, our wages have barely increased we always obviously we want to get the cheapest clothes possible because yeah. we also want to survive as well as buy nice clothes yeah. like it's not I I would push people to not always buy or like to reduce consumption but at the same time I'm very aware of the fact that we are in a economic situation where a lot of people are obliged to buy cheapest possible clothing. Yeah. Obviously, well, I mean, so uh, for, so just just kind of addressing that point. Mm. Um, I mean, like me personally, I I thought something that I could do just on a very local scale was like I'm just not going to buy any more clothes. So last year I decided I'm just not going to buy any more clothes, and yeah. I I did, but the clothes I bought were from charity shops, which I kind of thought, well, maybe that's useful. But I and I mean I, I'm saying that as someone who agrees that the, these are structural and systemic issues, mm. but I I do think that is also a place for individuals, right? That there is stuff that we yeah. can do. I mean, one thing I'll say first is um, workers and trade unions insist that we don't boycott, like. I want That's to put really that out helpful. there. That's really, like, really don't helpful. boycott because this is one thing I've been trying to tell people a lot. And at one point, I think a famous, not famous, but a well-known comedian, they shared something in one of my posts and said, oh, yeah, this is why we should boycott. And I was like, no, this is what oh, I'm trying okay. to do. So, so actually I'm not buying to, is yeah, not the right thing to do. Please don't boycott. Like my thing is reduce consumption. That's it. You don't need to buy as much as we've been told we can buy. You don't need to buy five t-shirts. You don't need to buy five. Okay. So don't stop buying altogether, yeah, don't but stop. you don't need to Yeah. Like for consume. me, for example, if I need something, I will buy it from like, Matalan or whatever is local to me. Or, I don't know, and I just explain why they say don't boycott. Yeah, because um, they this is their income. They they depend on the garment industry, and this is the thing that a lot of people have had issues with. Um, the recent big move to boycott fast fashion for the environment because you've kind of picked you've got like you've kind of neglected the whole worker aspect of this mm, like that's really, really workers helpful. need that we they need the income the garment industry exists we can't boycott the whole garment because then the whole industry, industry collapses exactly them. so don't boycott reduce your consumption obviously like with me for example I buy second hand but if I need something I will buy it from Primark wherever I can go Okay. so it's not like so you're and just I, being more conscious about yeah, your consumption, exactly. basically. And I think from the individual level, again, I really want to emphasize that, please, like, if we can, just kind of shift away from the consumption aspect and focus on how can I raise awareness? That's the key. And what can I do in my kind of, with my power to speak out and to vocalize? And whatever, happening? and I think also in whatever area you're in, because it links, it certainly links to everything. I remember one of the most powerful um things I uh, that made me think about as well was just um, it was uh, Huda Katabi from the US oh, and yeah. she was saying she's, like yeah, just and for me as well it was, it was from an Islamic point of view she was saying like you know what does it mean that the thing that touches your skin every day that is closest to you mm. um, and as someone who wears hijab as well that's very like personal you know what I mean it's like literally on my body all the time there is cloth that is so close to my skin um, that you know that someone's made yeah. that that that's been I don't know who's, whose life that was yeah. I literally know nothing about them I think it's and it's interesting that, that as well for me because you know my my grandparents when they moved to this country my grandma was uh, essentially a garment worker oh, she would be peace working my, gra- my granddad was well, yeah. right and then that's so that's like 
Okay, so I have like a granddad who is spinning cotton in mills. I have a grandma who is, um, you know, making pieces in at home very much so they could exploit the labor again. So you don't have to pay yeah. for rent, you don't have to pay for health and safety, any of that. Of migrant people, yeah. people who don't who can't unionize necessarily because they don't have like a joint language that they share with the other workers, all of this stuff. Mm. I mean, it is then really jarring for me to go, but now I just wear clothes and have no idea who made them. Yeah. When I get so upset when my grandparents tell me about what they went through, right? It was crazy. Like, and it's like you said at the beginning, we've lost that connection between anything. And yeah, our grandparents, it's so crazy. Like my dad was, my granddad was, um, he was just around here local, like oh, in East London. He was, um, he was a tailor. And then in Bangladesh as well, like... My family has been from Silla, but we don't really have a connection to the, bang, to the garment industry. But even then, it's just like, I don't know, man. I feel like, I don't know if it's because I've got those connect, that connection mm. to Bangladesh that makes me more mm. thingy inclined. But also one thing I wanted to raise, now you mentioned the, the Islam aspect, is the fact, it's like, the contradict. Also, like, just one thing I want to raise is the fact that a lot of brands, they've kind of jumped on like the whole diversity and mm. inclusion aspect. And for yeah, really example, Nike, they've kind of, they've decided to put a Nike hijab. They've got um, women in hijabs. Um, and at the same time, right now, as we speak, like in Indonesia, they've started slowly pulling out of these factories where were and leaving workers with no severance pay. Severance pay is basically what you get when you, um, when like your company goes bankrupt or just leaves or something and they give you like certain amount to survive they give they've got left no, with no severance pay they've given them no they've got backdated wages mm. and this is like an epidemic in um, Indonesia which uh, is like and the thing is it's not very it's being spoken about but not so much no, thank you but, so much for raising that because this is something that grates me all the time which is this real um, celebration of you know uh, Nike hijab uh, or just like just general and you see the thing that I've seen recently is like Nike and other corporations kind of funding these other ethical projects so that might be like yes. um, a sports project for catering to Muslim women now oh don't gosh. I'm not no shade on those projects yeah, because yeah, the, the people behind those are doing amazing work but what troubles me is that the same company funding them is a company that is exploiting the same versions of those yeah. people in a different part of the world exactly and the thing is for me, it's just about profit. Like their whole, the whole corporation itself is based on the exploitation of women. 100%. How can you say these corporations genuinely care about getting women out there, empowering women? They know it sells. They're doing it because it yeah. sells. They would not, someone told me they'd be um, promoting racism if it was fashionable. hundred like, percent. No, that's such so, a good way of putting it's it. It's so true. Of like, course they would. Yeah. And, and yeah. I think also this is, you know, it's this... For, as well, I think just uh, like th sticking to the hijabi kind of thing and representation of race and Muslims mm. and Muslim women. Um, it's also this co-option of us where we, it's like bring in part of yourself, but never your whole self. So if you want to bring in Islamic 100%. morality, Islamic ethics, yeah. if you want to talk about injustice, you want to talk about actually th this level of monop monopolistic capitalism, mm. it's completely un-Islamic. Um, but but no, that's like, you can't, but as soon as you bring that critique in, then no, 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 no. We, we just want you, we want you at your like superficial aesthetic. Exactly. Um, but I don't think, you know, and, and I think as Muslims, we do need to ask ourselves, well, what's, what cost are we willing to pay mm. to be quote unquote like, included? And who and which of us Who's, get included yeah. at the other's price? Exactly. Again, it's kind of like, they've, again, in my opinion, they've kind of created this, this mentality where like, they, we we should care about being represented as like as people of color, South Asian, etc. But then when it comes to South Asians in the global, like in the global north, they okay, be represented. But in the global south, what about them? Like, 100%. it's like it's creating this kind of hierarchy, yeah. if anything. Definitely. Or, 
like people of color in the global north um, being represented. Yeah, we deserve to have these positions in power. Mm. I mean, like people of color in the global south. Mm-hmm. Oh, well. And this is connected, I think, to all the other things we've talked about on this podcast. You know, like, again, the limits of this whole discussion around representation. So you have, and these things are connected. You have your your Sajid Javids and Priti Patels, oh, and God, we celebrate yeah. them as representation. And who are they deporting and extraditing? <laughs> the same people who we then are exploiting in the oh global south, God. who are producing our it's... clothes that we then are like, please represent us and let us buy these products. So it's, and it just seems like this uh, kind of ever going cycle yeah. where we keep uncritically, I think, falling yeah. for very limited versions of liberation um, and very limited versions of inclusivity. Yeah. And so on, and just to kind of, uh, kind of, I don't know, sum up and round this off a bit, I think, yeah, you've done a really amazing job of helping us understand that, you know, what is shown to be the opposite of unethical is often not actually the opposite of it. And it's often just a repackaging yeah, of exactly, it yeah. that makes us feel a bit less complicit. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think also you've done a good job of telling us, I mean, because I always ask at the end, you know, if it's a false binary, why does it exist? But it kind of seems to me that the function of of the this binary existing is that consumption continues and profit continues to yeah. be made because nobody has to dig deeper. But I guess what I've taken from you in terms of like uh, useful things that I can do is... So the most useful one was don't boycott, but yeah. but be really conscious about my consumption. Um, and the other thing is, you know, how can I and the work I'm doing around state violence, Islamophobia, racism, that kind of thing, uh, elevate the voices of uh, yeah. labor rights activists and workers, unionist garment workers? Um, and so I'll be definitely keeping on following your work. But is there anything else that you advise us to do? Or is there, I always say at the end of the podcast, is there a better way of thinking about this binary than ethical and unethical? What, what, I mean, we forget the binary, but like, is there another way we should be thinking about the garment industry or industries in general? Yeah, um, that's a good question. I think the one thing I would want people to take forward is that whenever like you hear about these things and you look towards yourself like obviously there is a certain amount of individual responsibility we have but please like we need to focus on corporate accountability like I'll emphasize that completely um holding corporates to account speaking out against them it's like I think that whole conversation has been lost from this whole ethical Mm. fashion movement also it just makes me I just want to say one thing on that I know a lot of people who want to sort of I think we also venerate the contradiction as well here is that you've got a lot of people of colour and particularly like I think people of colour and working class people of colour who we kind of venerate becoming CEOs or of corporations or becoming mm. corporate lawyers actually and you know in my opinion you're then part of this whole paradigm where you're justifying more and more and you're yeah. in fact often trying to protect the You're preserving the this violence. power exactly and because you've got they've got the brown face there that Give, if, if anything gives them more power to do it exactly like I said pretty and they can say what they want because yeah. they can say I'm, a, I'm the child of an immigrant who hates freedom of movement like right. when so you've got a brown yeah. face you've got more power and I think and I think if, if we just ask in a really simple sense like who benefits um, from ethical fashion as it currently stands as you've said it just seems like corporations and therefore what it justifies is exploitation mm. um, and so I guess also when you're asking people to hold corporations to account, I would suggest that we all try to learn a little bit more about capitalism. But I think yeah. honestly, there's a real, a real lack of, because I think we all have a poverty of imagination and we think that people yeah. often stop just before considering that, that, because I think there's this feeling that you can't, come on, you can't really say there's another way of thinking beyond this idea of exploiting people's labor for profit. Yeah. Um, but I think if you boil it down to the idea that, 
our whole world relies on this idea that when I work, um, you keep the majority of the money for yeah, the work yeah. that I do. Now, if you said that to me in those words, I'd be like, that's Naisha, that's a bit unfair. Cause that, I, yeah. I, you didn't do anything and I was just sitting here working and you were just like chilling. Yeah. But on a global scale, we've gone, it's crazy to imagine something beyond that. That's the only thing that's imaginable. It's crazy. Yeah, I completely agree. Like this whole thing doesn't exist in a vacuum. Like this didn't just come out. Like this is deeply entrenched capitalism, um, neo-colonialism and neoliberal policies. I actually wrote a couple of articles for Gaudem about this. So. Please point us in that direction. What can we yeah. search? So um, on my website, oh gosh, I can't remember now. I did, I basically uploaded a lot of essays I did at uni. So, so there's one about Bangladesh and development and the garment industry. Um, so that explains a lot of, that kind of briefly delves into the like colonial aspect of it and how neoliberal policies kind of made this worse. Um, I did two essays for Gaudem. So you can check it on their website. Um, just search Maisha Begum and you'll probably find it. Um, and yeah, I do think I need to be more vocal about this area. But I also have a resource page on my blog where I put lots of Basically, when I finished my degree, I put loads of papers that I read that were useful to me. That's and so then helpful. I put notes down. Amazing. So those ones, they all kind of explain, especially there's one called the de redevelop, no, develop, underdevelopment oh, no. of the global south. That is really good. So I put some brief notes on that. Amazing. Because I didn't, I'm not very eloquent myself, but it's very you well explained are. there. No. So. Well, thank you so yeah. much, because I think that having those resources is, is something that a lot of people would like to access, but we don't really know, you know, how to learn that's, more. I think that's the problem that when I went and did my master's, like I came from psychology background, so mm. I was supposed to become a psychologist. And then I got really into labor rights and I was like, oh, let me just take this uh, master's because I kind of want to learn more about the in-depth issues. But I barely understood anything that was going on in my lectures. I was in the library <laughs> all day trying to understand Marx. That's very reassuring. Literally, I didn't understand anything. I was like, it took me like, I was in the library for hours trying to understand neoliberalism. Like this didn't just, I can't just say it's weird that I'm saying it out loud because I remember just almost being in tears because I couldn't understand it mm -hmm. so that's the fact really, that that's really I cried <laughs> over that too <laughs> oh my god David Harvey like I don't know if you know he's a legend like honestly that so guy funny. made it so accessible for me love you but um, you, honestly, <laughs> but honestly like because of that I think it taught me that there's a lot of because people the only way this information presented has been in a way that's so inaccessible yeah. and you don't, you can't digest. I think that's deliberate. I the, think yeah, we're supposed exactly, to find it Because then you don't know how to change the system because yeah. it's constantly being hidden from me. So that's why with my blog, when I left, I was like, right, I need to make this shit accessible, yeah. as accessible as possible. And I just, that's why when you, when I speak my in my Instagram posts, my blogs, I'm just like putting it out there like. Yeah, and I think that's why I speak. To because I don't speak like in academic. Like, and that's why I wanted you on this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> you explained, I think you, no, but I think honestly, you've distilled a lot of information to us in a very, uh, yeah, in a very quick way that, that I think a lot of people, and especially corporations hide hide behind this kind of thing. So exactly, yeah. I mean, I, I'm going to wind up unless there's yeah, anything yeah. else that you is there anything important that we should should take uh, home apart from you've given us a lot to take home. To be honest, yeah. with you. <laughs> um, I'd say just one thing. Please focus on um, listening to workers and workers mobilizing trade unions, and that's where the changes systematic change lies with the workers. So please focus your efforts on listening to what workers are doing the mobilizing protests. Please support the protest, share their stuff, share what's going on, because I think that's where the change really lies. Thank you so, so much. And thank you for all your work, honestly. Um, Marshall, and I hope that you keep keep it up and thank keep teaching so us and educating us. Thank you for listening to this episode of Breaking Binaries. I hope you, like me, can take something from my guest this week. Look out for episodes fortnightly and if you enjoyed, please share with a friend or loved ones or even a nemesis. 
I want to thank Hussein Kasvani for making this possible and reaching out to me in the first place, as well as the whole gang of producers, Milo and Nate. The music you've been hearing was made by an old high school connection that came through, so shout out to Violence Jack and give him a follow at, at GetViolenceJack online. Thanks to all my guests for chatting with me every week and helping us think a little more critically and I hope humbly about our world. I do believe that the way we transform the world is transforming the way people think about it. So thank you for listening. I've been your host, Sahima Manzal Khan. Bye.